place to live I can't even afford the city that I grew up in Got kicked out of my place My landlord wants to make it a short-term hotel For tourists With Airbnb Fuck Airbnb Fuck Airbnb Fuck Airbnb Sorry, son. Uh, we've turned your room into a uh, Airbnb. is hosted by Nolympics LA, a coalition of human rights organizations fighting against the 2028 Los Angeles Olympic bid and the evils of the Olympic Games. You can find us on social media at Nolympics LA and check out our website at nolympicsla.com to learn more. We recorded a podcast series called Rings of Hell in 2018 with our friends at Knock.LA, dedicated to demystifying the Olympic grift. We'll be playing episode 5 in its entirety, wherein we speak with political scientist Jules Boykoft, a really incredible voice in the anti-Olympic movement that wrote a seminal text for Olympic resistance called Power Games. You can follow his work on Twitter, at Jules Boykoft, and online at JulesBoykoft.org. Full disclosure, he also wrote a book about Nolympics LA. You should pick them both up. Some Nolympics LA members met up with Jules at a transnational anti-Olympic summit in May of 2019, one year out from the original start date of the now-delayed 2020 Olympic Games. We'll hear a little more from their experience together in 2019 and learn about why the 2020 Games and the Olympic machine have been so devastating for Japan. Remember, once we make our way back through these Reigns of Hell episodes, we'll go on weekly journeys to various Olympic host cities and countries to explore the real cultural impacts of the Games, with interviews, music, art, and more. So stay so tuned! Stay tuned.
I'm Eric, and in July of 2019, myself and some other members of No Olympics traveled over to Tokyo for the first transnational Olympic Resistance Summit, one year out from the original 2020 Olympic start date, which featured Jules Boykoff as a speaker and scholar on the devastating impacts of the Olympic Games. We were fortunate to be able to walk around Tokyo with Jules as he took us on a tour of Olympic hotspots, including the new National Stadium and the Japanese Olympic Committee headquarters, where a statue of the racist, eugenicist Olympic founder, literal baron Pierre de Coubertin, can be found. He helped us to understand just how devastating the Olympic Games have always been for Japan. You're about to hear some of his insights. Enjoy! So the Kasumigaoka apartments were originally, I sat down with a couple of the residents who were there, three residents who were there in 1964. And that's where they lived in this community ahead of the 1964 Olympics. And then they were told that they had to leave their apartments and they were going to build instead a big tall tower in its place. They described the 1964 displacement as not nearly as painful as the current one for 2020 because they were told that they needed to get out entirely and they, they had to move into three separate communities. So at least before, in 64, the community was moved into another building right there so they could still remain a community. They weren't happy about it, so don't get me wrong, but in 2020, they're being fractured, so the community's being spread out into three different places, and they don't have a whole lot of choice in terms of where they go. And so they're really upset about that. that. That means that because of an optional displacement to make way for the Olympic Games, they lost their community. The Olympics are a powerful lens through which to see the rapacity of capitalism in sort of raw form. We're gonna head over toward where the Olympic building is, the Japanese Olympic Committee. And also it's close to the uh, Kasumi Gaoka apartment complex that I was talking about before. The people I've spoken with were not happy with the amount of money that they got as their settlements. They were extremely disgruntled with the amount of money that they got to make their move. And that's kind of amazing to me in the sense that you know, there's always money for everything with the Olympics. You want to make special driving lanes so that the IOC people can make their way around town? No problem, we got that. You want to build some monstrous stadium that costs billions of dollars? Sure, no problem. But you want to relocate the people that are getting kicked out of their homes for an optional Olympics? No, oh, sorry, we're just running low. I mean, you'd think you'd treat them like kings and queens when you relocated them. That's definitely not been the case. I mean, I heard it right from their own mouths, so. And I think that tells you almost all you need to know about, about the Olympics and priorities, who they're looking out for and who they're not looking out for. So the Olympics have a long and inglorious history of intense corruption. There's the Salt Lake City scandal. Word came out right ahead of the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City that a whole lot of bribery was going on. And when it came out what they were giving IOC members, it was kind of incredible. They were giving IOC members, family members, like knee replacements and stuff like that, free tuition to various colleges, tickets to the Utah Jazz in the NBA, 
a $524 violin. I mean, you name it, they were just throwing anything that the IOC wanted at them to try to secure their votes. We think it was probably happening with Nagano as well, the 1998 Olympics that happened here, the Winter Olympics in Nagano. But we'll never know because they shredded all the documents. But there's been a scandal recently that has hit Japan and that's around their former head of the JOC, the Japanese Olympic Committee, a guy named Sunikasu Takeda. And he got wrapped up in an alleged, at this point, vote-buying scandal. Pretty interesting stuff. It looks like with both the 2016 vote, which Rio de Janeiro eventually won, and with the 2020 vote, which Tokyo won, that there was some money exchanging hands, and so he was forced to step down because of all that. This is the, the JOC building, the Japanese Olympic Committee's shiny new building right here. So for all I know, that's where Takeda signed the paper that allowed for the transfer of the $2 million into this secret Singapore account, Black Tidings. And when it all came out, he eventually resigned. I think it just was going to be too much flack for them to deal with, not worth it. But hey, when you have this much money sloshing through the Olympic system, corruption's basically inevitable. So this is the big, shiny new building. Apparently, they were in a much more modest building before. But hey, when you're rolling with the Olympics, the expectations start to rise as to the privilege that you expect. and so kind of looking at that privilege right here. So guys, part of why I want to kind of get going over because the security was pretty tight over here yeah, last yeah. time. So it might be one of those things you want to just get, we might have to get in and get out. So uh, let's just kind of conceal cameras until the last second whenever, if you know, you know how, I don't tell you guys anything, but that's the Baron, the one and only. The Baron. Look at the Baron chilling like that, hands in his pockets. Yeah, the Baron, the man behind the Olympic Games. The Olympics were his brainchild, and when he got it all together in the 1890s, he brought together a bunch of his friends who were counts and dukes and so on and created the International Olympic Committee. Tomas Bach the other day said that the Baron would be jealous if he saw what was going on here with how successful the Olympics have been. Yeah, Bach said the Baron would be jealous because the Olympics are going so well right now. I thought that was an interesting choice of words. Yeah. You got to look at the list of the IOC members. There's still an abundance of barons. They just are shakes now. They've opened it up to shakes. There's a, a couple princes. Now that they uh, opened it up to women in 1981, there's even a princess. I did say 1981 because that's the Reagan era, man. That's when they said, yeah, I guess women can play a role in the IOC. The Baron was a bucket of contradictions, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I mean, the Baron here, it's kind of funny to see these girls in front of the Baron because the Baron did not want these girls to participate in sports. What the Baron said was they were there to supply applause and maybe to place one of those Olympic laurels on top of the victorious man's head. So, didn't want women involved. He did want people of color involved because it could offset their laziness, as he would talk about it. So he actually advocated for African countries' involvement, um, but only to offset their laziness. And, uh, you know, this was in the 
30s, so it's not like every single person across the world was uh, a full-throttle, you know, racist. He wanted to start the Olympics because the French had gotten mauled so badly in the Franco-Prussian War, and he felt like it was because the youth had gotten too weak and flabby, so he thought if he had sports more, that they could get tough, and that would get them in turn ready for war. And so that was sort of the impetus in a lot of ways for creating the Olympics. And yet, the games are supposedly all about peace and so on. There was a lot, of, a lot of high talk about how the games were supposed to help kids, supposed to help the everyday athlete, but a lot of the spaces that we've been walking through here today are spaces that those kids and everyday athletes would have used that are now being shut down. They can't access them anymore. So if you scratch the surface of some of these promises from the Olympics, you see that it's not quite as rosy as they say, time and time again. So here's the cauldron from the 1998 Olympics at Nagano. We don't know as much as we'd like to about the Olympics at Nagano because they shredded all the documents, but most people who pay attention to these things have a strong feeling that there was loads of corruption involved. It was right around the time of the Salt Lake City bid scandal. There's evidence that there was bribery around the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. So it stands to reason, especially since they shredded everything, that there was plenty of corruption to go around here in Nagano as well. Well, right now, we're in this little nexus where all these things come together. You've got Olympic power in the building right next to us here, the Japanese Olympic Committee building, shiny, brand new, put millions into that thing. When you look to our right here, there's the place where the Kasumi Gaoka apartments once stood, steamrolled to make way for space for the Olympic Games. And then you've got this tall building being built right here trying to get it done in time for the Olympics, way taller than the original height code, which was expanded, made much higher because of the Olympic Games. So you've got this power nexus right here. This is, this is the zone, this is the hot zone. And, and then right behind us, you got the actual Olympic Stadium. So kind of all comes together right here, the Olympic rings right in the center. It really crystallizes capitalism in a way that we can see with our own two eyes. I mean, if, if you don't have a capitalist analysis of the Olympics, you can't understand all this stuff happening around you. It just seems kind of nifty and exciting. Um, but if you bring a class analysis to understanding the Olympics, well, then all this starts to make sense right here. And for me, that's what's important about the Olympics in terms of outreach, trying to talk to other people about capitalism. The Olympics can be a really handy vehicle for that because Notwithstanding all the things I've been saying all day, it's actually pretty popular among the general population and people really support the athletes and are very into it. So it becomes the space in which we can have these conversations about capitalism. Those are conversations we absolutely need to have today. So capitalism's depravity is in full view when it comes to the Olympic Games.
This is Rings of Hell, a Olympics LA and Knock LA production, examining the history, impact, and possible future of the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. It was just sort of a, a fun game that elites could play. Come to the Olympics, get together a few times a year for meetings and so on. Now it's, it's much more intense. The scrutiny is much higher from the media. Um, and, you know, the pay is better too, to be honest. So just to put a, a real finer point on it, if you're a member of the International Olympic Committee's executive board, and you show up for meetings or you show up for the actual Olympics just to enjoy the festivities, you get paid $900 a day in per diem. Episode 5, A History of Olympic Grift. 125 years of exploitation, theft, and celebration capitalism. Hey all, welcome to episode 5 of Rings of Hell. I'm your host Bushido Scroll, and today we're going to be talking to Professor Jules Boykoff, Professor of Politics and Government at Pacific University in Oregon. Uh, he's also author of the book Power Games, A Political History of the, the Olympic Games. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, you know, it's uh, California's all on fire at the moment, so that's always a, a fun point. Uh, but I wanted to start off by looking back at the history of the games and where they kind of originated, because they have some very interesting characters that came up with the idea for an international games. Yes, characters indeed. In fact, it really began with this sort of plucky French aristocrat named Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who in the 1890s decided to try to revive the Olympics as they existed in Greece many, many uh, years prior. And basically what animated the Baron Pierre de Coubertin was that France had just been humiliated in the Franco-Prussian War. And so in his writing, he wrote, I shall burnish a flabby and cramped youth, its body and its character by sport. He basically thought the French youth were getting too weak and flabby, and so he wanted to use sport to toughen them up to get them ready for war. And I mention that because, in a way, you could say that the Olympics were founded on this contradiction. On one hand, it's supposed to be to help youth become more healthy. But on the other hand, it was very much in preparation for war. And it's that sort of contradiction that makes up the bedrock of the history of the Olympics. Another example of that is that although the Olympics were supposedly for everybody, they were definitely not designed for women in the early days. The Baron, uh, Pierre de Coubertin, said stuff like a, a woman's glory rightfully came through the number of uh, children she produced and that she should really just stay away from sports. He argued that women's sports should be excluded from the Olympics unless women were there to put the crowns on the victorious men. So, you know, in short, his, his views on women in sport were far from enlightened. And he also gave voice to racism tinged with colonialism at times when, you know, in the early 1920s, he argued that African countries should be allowed to join the Olympic family, but just only because to, it would be a way of offsetting their, you know, quote, individual laziness and a thousand jealousies of the white man. So the Olympics wow. were based on racism. They were based on sexism, colonialism. And they were based on getting ready for people for war. And one last thing, Timothy, you know, class privilege is based into the games from the beginning. So the very definition of amateurism was essentially pure-grade class privilege. 
people who performed manual labor for pay in the early days of the Olympics, whether it was tied to sports or not, if they were a bricklayer, for example, they were not they were not allowed to participate because they were considered professionals, professional bricklayers. So you can imagine who the Baron got to uh, play in his games in the early days. It was essentially aristocrats who had a lot of free time and weren't essentially working for pay. So these sort of things, you, you might just think that they're kind of ancient history and they have nothing to do with the modern games, but in a lot of ways they inflect the way that we see the Olympics today, I would argue. Yeah, it, it seems like we have a much harsher kind of brand of nationalism, but we, we see that softened in the modern games. It's kind of surprising to me that everything, that the, the roots were so absolutely reactionary. And we kind of covered this in another episode, talking about the links between fascism, as it were, in like Hitler's Germany. But it's fascinating to see that this idea actually came out of French nationalism and geopolitical humiliation. How did that change into modern times? Because it seems like we still see linkages between the security and the police state and the military state repping, you know, athletes as veterans and stuff like that. But they're also like LGBTQ friendly and they're also repping diversity. Like where did that change really come in the nature of the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And from the outset of the games, it was it was designed to be hyper nationalistic. I mean, you walk in behind the flag of your country and like you pointed out, it really opened the door for fascists or incipient fascists or Nazis in the case of the 1936 Berlin Games to harness the Olympics for their own political advantage. And over the years, the people running the Olympics and the International Olympic Committee, also known as the IOC, the people running the Olympics have gotten a whole lot more PR savvy. I would say that hasn't really kicked in until the 1980s when they start to get their PR game on, and now it's in full effect. I mean, mm -hmm. you mentioned the inclusion of LGBTQ people, at least in, in theory. I mean, in practice, there's not a whole lot of protection for the LGBTQ people of the country where the, the games happen to be. Russia is a pretty shining example of that, having hosted the Sochi 2014 Winter Olympics. But certainly in the 1980s, you see a pivot in the PR game of the Olympics, and this comes just as money starts to really flow into the coffers of the IOC or the International Olympic Committee. And what was the IOC like before this infusion of cash? I guess what I'll kind of loosely term like a real neoliberal uh, evolution for that, that organization. It was not nearly as organized. It was still the elites of our, of our uh, world, really. You, know, you had your princes and barons and counts and dukes. They have an incredibly high presence on the International Olympic Committee, even to this day. I mean, still, it retains aristocratic flavor with, you know, princesses from Liechtenstein and princes from Saudi Arabia, even today. Um, but that was, it was just sort of a, a fun game that elites could play. Come to the Olympics, get together a few times a year for meetings and so on. Now it's, it's much more intense. The scrutiny is much higher from the media. Um, and, you know, the pay is better, too, to be honest. So just to put a, a real finer point on it, if you're a member of the International Olympic Committee's executive board and you show up for meetings or you show up for the actual Olympics just to enjoy the festivities, you get paid $900 a day in per diem, okay? So $900 per diem if you're on the executive board. That doesn't even count your hotels. It doesn't count all the terrific food. I'm sure they're shoveling your direction. Like $900 a day for the per diem. So 
you know, that definitely wasn't happening until the the Olympics went full-fledged corporate in the 1980s and became the sort of behemoth that we know right now. And we're seeing that not just with the IOC, but also with, like, FIFA and the their recent scandals. Where do you think, where's this drive coming from, do you think? Is it just uh, the necessity of, like, investment money to to get a return? Is it a new fascination with the powerful wanting to get involved in sport? Like, what's driving this growth in this sort of capitalist uh, capitalist uh, political entrances of these organizations? Yeah, well, I mean, I think for starters, there's just a whole lot of money sloshing through the sort of mega event system, whether it's the Olympics or the World Cup. And so everyone's trying to get their little piece of the money pie. And with that, you see corruption just left and right. I mean, FIFA almost makes the IOC look like angels, and they're absolutely not angels. But FIFA, you know, had the full throttle corruption scandal under Seth Blatter, and it's tied in certain ways to corruption. You know, one thing for us in the Olympics, one thing for us to keep an eye out for is that some of the same people involved in FIFA and the World Cup are also involved in, in the International Olympic Committee. There's overlap. Seth Blatter, the, the former head, now disgraced head of FIFA, was a longtime member of the IOC. They haven't extended the courtesy to Gianno Infantino, the current head of FIFA. People are wondering why. Partly, I think, it's because FIFA has such a terrible reputation internationally right now. But one thing to keep an eye on is that the, uh, the Rio 2016 bribe allegations that went down recently involving the head of the Brazilian Olympics, Carlos Nuzman is his name, they found loads of money in his uh, posh apartment there on the southern side of Rio de Janeiro. And he's now you know, facing charges. His trial is, is happening in Rio for corruption, accepting bribes to get votes to get Rio to get the game. Same thing for Tokyo 2020, and that's where it could get really interesting because those Olympics haven't happened yet. French prosecutors are investigating a suspicious $2 million payment to a group called Black Tidings that had a secret bank account in Singapore that's linked to the discredited guy from Senegal called Papa Masata Diak, who's the son of Lamine Diak, who's a former IOC member who's now under house arrest in France. You get the picture. I mean, this, there's just so much money sloshing through the system that it opens up all these possibilities for corruption. And what does their normal lobbying look like? I mean, I guess sort of their more gray area, maybe semi-legal uh, political entrances into these markets look like. Oh, well, I mean, it's just the, the same kind of plug that they give is, hey, this, this is going to put you on the map. This is going to put you on the global map, which is hilarious because, I mean, cities like Rio aren't already on the global map. Cities like Los Angeles, I mean, it was even used in Los Angeles, which I find amazing that, that it's going to put Los Angeles on, on the world stage here in the world map as if it's not already there. So, you know, there's that kind of sort of rhetorical push behind it. And let's be honest, I mean, the people of, a, of the everyday people, the working people of a city, aren't the ones that are pushing to hold the Olympics in their town. It's the cream of the crop, elite, rich people who see it as an opportunity to become famous, in some cases to become wealthy. I mean, the construction contracts that are related to the Olympics in most cases are immense, and they have to go to somebody, and guess what? They often go to well-connected construction companies of political elites in the town. A lot of political leaders try to build their careers and use the Olympics as a sort of trampoline forward. I think the the career of Eduardo Pais in, in Rio, he tried to use the Olympics to sort of 
catapult himself up onto the world stage. There was talk at one point of him running for president, although he's not doing it in the election here in October in Brazil. I think the same goes for Garcetti. You have to wonder if Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, is trying to use the Olympics as a sort of political trampoline to vault his own career, perhaps at the presidential level. And and I want to ask, because when you bring up Brazil, a lot of us think of the empty stadiums or some that are now, uh, you know, open air prisons and stuff. But what happens to those facilities in places like Japan or places like the U.S., like in Utah, developed nations that, that onboard the games? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. I mean, let me just say as background that I lived in Rio de Janeiro from August through December 2015 as a Fulbright scholar, research scholar. And so Rio holds a special place in my heart. And when I look at what's happened with Rio, it, it really hurts my heart. Um, with all the White Elephant Stadium sitting in disrepair, all the incredible false promises that were given from the water situation was supposed to be cleaned up in Guanabara Bay, which just didn't happen, um, to the promises that everyday people would benefit from the Olympics in a material monetary way, which just didn't happen, to the promise that Everybody was going to be safer because of the Olympics. That just didn't happen. It's, Rio is an incredibly dangerous place to be. But to your question, Rio doesn't illuminate just Rio problems. Rio illuminates Olympic problems. It doesn't really matter where the Olympics happen. These problems tend to transfer to different cities. Even in places that are developed countries, you see the White Elephant Stadium you look at Greece, for example, the photographs in Athens. Uh, you look in Beijing, which is, you know, an up-and-coming economic powerhouse. They just celebrated the 10-year anniversary of the 2008 Beijing Olympics, Summer Olympics. And there was photographs circulating of these white elephant stadiums sitting in disrepair. Part of it's because the Olympics just have all these obscure sports, you know, kayaking and stuff like that, which just aren't big sports in a lot of these places. The same thing happened to Rio. Now my understanding is I haven't been back yet, but I intend to go with it, but that the the whitewater kayaking arena has more alligators living in it and using it than humans in Rio right now. I'm going to check that out for myself. So the same dynamics apply, whether you're talking about a place like Rio de Janeiro or you're talking about a place like Paris in France. We've seen with well on the obscure sports. I still do want to see them bring back bike polo. Uh, that would make me and my friends very very happy. Uh, but beyond that, the the IOC and specifically the American the U.S. Olympic Ameri uh, sorry the U.S. Olympic Committee has been beset by a lot of scandals recently. Um, I'm thinking first and foremost of Larry Nasser, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about a the scandal and b why these are able to go on for as long as they do. Yeah, I mean what a horrific scandal involving Larry Nasser and the gymnastics athletes from the U.S. Olympic team and, and many other people who were affected uh, by his wicked, awful behavior. I mean, I think if you just take a step back and you take hyper-competitiveness, you add a dash of win-at-all-costs mentality plus a lack of oversight and you stir and you've got yourself a concoction for abuse. And I would highlight the lack of oversight and people that wriggle themselves into positions of authority where there's not other parents or adults watching over them. You know, this transcends sports in a lot of ways where you see people getting themselves in positions of power where they're not being watched. I mean, the Catholic Church is a, is a prime example of this with the scandals we've seen just in the last few weeks here, let alone the bigger ones that preceded them. So, I mean, what you're seeing with the United States Olympic Committee is 
they're dealing with it only reactively, and they seem to be, at least at this point, doing the bare minimum to try to really truly address the problem with oversight. And uh, it's a problem. I mean, it's obviously a huge problem for those athletes who experience this horrific situation with Larry Nasser. Um, but there's all sorts of, of abuse that happens to athletes. It's mental abuse, not, not only fe- uh, physical and sexual abuse, which is awful in itself, but the mental abuse that goes on. I think that came out as well in the Larry Nasser trial. But that's a, a whole lot more rampant when it comes to these athletes. You know, and, and I should say, I, I, despite everything I've said to you today, I, I don't necessarily come at this as some kind of like grumpadelic academic who hates sports. I actually spent, you know, half my life uh, playing competitive sports. I played for the U.S. Olympic soccer team in international uh, competition. I played professional soccer down in L.A. In fact, a, a bunch. So, you know, I don't, I don't hate sports, but I know pretty well from personal experience that. The mental side of the game is very tough, and when you throw abusers into the mix, it just really makes it awful. And I'm happy you brought up your professional experience because I wanted to ask about the linkages between U.S. academics and the Olympics because that really is, you know, the time of your life when you're most likely to be competing. Um, There's very, uh, you know, a huge cadre of very elite athletes in college anyways. Um, Is that something that could be healthy? And if it's not, what do you think the disconnect is there between student athletes and their own, you know, well-being as being pushed forward or pushed aside by the universities? Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other issue, isn't it, the the state of NCAA sports in the United States right now. I mean, it's, it's clearly an exploitative model, especially for the big moneymaker sports. Like my sport, soccer, was not a huge moneymaker. So in a lot of ways, we benefited from the moneymaker sports like football and basketball. Um, but there's no question that we're finally coming around to an understanding that the NCAA has been milking these athletes for all their worth and discarding them. And I saw that with, you know, even in my time, a, a lot of athletes, you know, we just didn't have the protections. We we had, you know, full scholarships, but if the coach decided he didn't think we were living up to what we were, our, ex, our expectations were or if the, the coach just didn't like us, you know, or the athletic director, they could discard us. And there's really – that needs to be addressed, if you ask me, the, the whole like, discarding of athletes and treating them as just, you know, uh, refuse to get rid of as you sort of aspire to the highest heights. And – you know, I would say that in terms of how this feeds into the Olympics, it really depends on the sport. So you've got your minor sports that are much more reliant, I would say, on the NCAA. Um, but then you've got other other sports like basketball, for example. It's got the NCAA feeder system, but it also, you know, nowadays it relies on the professional ranks. So there's, there's, no, there's no question that the NCAA plays a sort of integral role in getting a lot of athletes ready, but it very much depends on the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, so kind of pivoting back to the the IOC, they've had, and this is more on their, their sort of spending and their habits and the impact of actually bringing in the games, because we've talked about the construction, but the amount of people that need to travel to the games uses up an incredible amount of energy resources. Uh, and the, the uh, Olympics try and kind of pay lip service towards being green, but it seems like just the throwing of the games is a severely impactful thing, no matter how you cut it. I think that's a really important point because the Olympic honchos at the International Olympic Committee tend to talk green, but they definitely don't walk green. And it's definitely a really good example of greenwashing. It wasn't until the 1990s that the International Olympic Committee made sustainability a sort of new arrow in its rhetorical quiver, yet follow-through is massively lacking. 
or the reason that you gave is, is a great place to start because everyone's got to fly there. Nearly everyone's got to fly there. Um, but even just to clear the space to make the large venues for the Olympics, for these specialized events we're talking, or just the, for the places where the athletes are going to stay in the Olympic Village. And there are just so many examples of greenwashing over the years. And, you know, let me give some recent ones that are, are meaningful to me because I, I happen to be there and see some of this with my own eyes. And I live in Portland, Oregon. I went up the road to Vancouver, Canada, when they were getting ready to host the 2010 Winter Olympics. And they were building a sea-to-sky highway that links Vancouver to some of the skiing venues in Whistler. And in doing so, they just, you know, crushed forests. They laid siege to animal life. Endangered species be damned. We needed to make this highway. London, they even, at the 2012 Summer Olympics, they kind of upped their greenwashing game by creating a new category of corporate sponsors they called Sustainability Partners. And one of those sustainability partners was BP, you know, Timothy, because you always think of BP when you think of a sustainability partner. I think that just goes to show kind of the overall mentality of, of really green sentiments when it comes to um, the Olympic Games. And we just saw the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea, where they chopped down, a, you know, some 58,000 trees in a sacred 500-year-old forest on Mount Dariwang to make way for just an Olympic ski run that no one's really going to use anymore because it's not even that good for these really high professional skiers that aren't going to go way out of their way to South Korea. So the Olympics have laid a pretty strong track record of greenwashing. And I think that links to the false promises that I was talking about before with Rio because one of the most painful examples for people that I worked with and met in Rio de Janeiro was that when the Olympics were passing through the initial bottleneck, trying to get everybody on board to support them, they were told that Guanabara Bay, which is notoriously filthy water, was going to be cleaned up, and 80% of the water flowing into Guanabara Bay was going to be uh, filtered. By the time the Olympics came around, that absolutely didn't happen. It was more like 20%. And so that's just another example of greenwashing in the form of false promises, which has just become all too prevalent when it comes to the Olympics in the 21st century. And how are they able to get away with that? Because I I feel like people around the world, especially, you know, politicos that watch the news and elected officials would know about the, the, you know, impact that they have on other cities. Um, Why are they allowed to sweep in, make these huge changes, and then disappear without any accountability? Well, for starters, it's written into the contract. The host city contract puts the host city on the hook. And so you even saw with Rio where they came up short at the very end. They were still short on just some basic expenditures by like some $30, $40 million. And they asked the International Olympic Committee for help. And the International Olympic Committee basically just said, screw you, you know, you're on your own. So part of it is it's just written into the paperwork at the beginning. Second, it's that you have the political elites of the city who are making these arrangements, and by the time the Olympics roll around, they're often long gone. I mean, the typical lag between awarding the Olympics and staging the Olympics is seven years. As you know, in Los Angeles, it was extended another four, so there's an 11-year run-up from the time that L.A. was handed the games recently. But, I mean, there you have just sort of this accountability gap where the people that were making the promises in the beginning are long gone. And I think the third thing has to be that the International Olympic Committee, these jet setters, they hop in their jets and and they leave and they're gone. Like they are not coming back to help you out. They are moving on to the next Olympic Games.
So the IOC has been dealing with some scandals about how they classify and treat intersex athletes and like non-binary athletes. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and what it sort of says about the state of international sports that they're still mishandling that. Yeah, I mean, the the international governing body for track and field, the IAAF it's called, they've essentially manufactured a problem where it really didn't exist, and they're trying to create these policies that are essentially designed to police women athletes while masquerading as objective arbiters of fairness and targeting women athletes who don't necessarily conform uh, to the way that these sport honchos want them to be. And so, I mean, this is a, a highly confected sort of scandal, if you will. The scandal for me is that the people running the international track body and the International Olympic Committee are basically going after women athletes, making their, their lives horrible. And so, I mean, I just don't see this being like a huge issue. I just feel like because of the fact that the IAAF and the IOC have just botched it so massively, uh, that it's forced all of us to really think about it. But it's another example of just like the sexism and, you know, horrific treatment of human beings that are baked into the Olympic Games today. And continuing down that path a little bit, we've also seen uh, doping scandals, particularly uh, targeting Russian athletes and the Russian Olympic program. Um, do you think the International Olympic Committee is capable of handling those issues? Uh, do you think that doping is like something they really should be concerned about at this level, um, at least in the way that they are? Or do you think they're they're sort of missing what the bigger issue is here? Well, they have a self-interest, the International Olympic Committee does, to brush these sort of things under the rug. And I think the way that you saw them deal with the cross-the-board Russian doping is a good example of that. They don't want to deal with it, and you can tell that they don't want to deal with it because they don't throw the kind of money that you need to deal with it towards the actual problem. Uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency, what some people call WADA, is chronically underfunded. And, you know, if you really want to deal with this problem, you have to stay on top of the technology, and uh, that's just not happening these days. And it's definitely a problem, and, and it also is exacerbating the difference between athletes from some of these um, more well-developed countries who have access to these um, drugs that can improve their their performance on the field or in the pool or whatever, and those who don't. And so it's definitely something they should deal with. They don't want to deal with it because it puts a stain on the games in a time when the Olympics are becoming much less popular, at least in regards to cities wanting to host them. They are immensely popular in terms of people tuning in to watch them on television, but in terms of the hosting of the Olympics, it's very clear that fewer and fewer cities are gained to host the Olympic Games. And as we move towards the end, I kind of want to ask, what do you think is in store for the IOC in the next, like, we're obviously focused on the 2028 bid for LA, but as you mentioned, cities are becoming more hostile-ish to, to the Olympic Committee. What do you think the IOC is going to do? How do you think they're going to compensate? Well, if we base what they're going to do in the future based on what they've been doing lately, uh, they're going to prevaricate. They're going to put forth manipulative PR statements. They're not going to do much. They're certainly going to do the very bare minimum that they feel like they have to do in order to try to make the Olympics look as positive as they can. You know, a lot of people, when Tomas Bach, the current president of the International Olympic Committee, a lot of people, when he came to power, thought that 
he was going to be this breath of fresh air, get things done, be more open. He's had this sort of Olympic Agenda 2020 reform program idea that he wanted to put into place. But he's turned out to be a bit of a petty dictator who has continued some of the very worst trends of the Olympics and boxing out people who raise questions, even people inside the International Olympic Committee and, and what they call the Olympic movement, those people who have raised questions about the way he runs things or some of the downsides that you and I have been talking about, they're basically getting run out of the organization. And one example of that is a guy named Richard Pound, who's a pretty mild critic, really, of the Olympics. He's been a member of the IOC for decades and, you know, former Olympian swimmer himself. He's from Canada, and he's raised some questions about doping. He's raised some other questions about whether it's worth it to host the Olympic Games. And basically, they took his positions away from him in these special committees in terms of the Olympic television programming. They just said, oh, you're going to talk about us like that? Well, we're going to take away um, your rights to run these committees. It very much resembles, in some respects, uh, what you see in the United States at the national level of politics with sort of vindictive nature of Donald Trump, president, taking away security clearances or whatever, just to be kind of a petty jerk, even though it doesn't much matter in terms of the overall national security picture. And since the IOC is so undemocratic and opaque, what do you think there are, what do you think the good options are for like kind of resisting or pushing back on them? Is that, are there any ways to get the Olympic Committee to move one way or the other? Has anyone been successful in those sort of pressure campaigns? I do think that activists in the 21st century have been really successful at shifting the way we talk about the Olympics. I would combine activists in Vancouver, for example, uh, who are super savvy and really push the needle in, in a radical direction on critiquing the game. Uh, you put them in contact with journalists. There's a many, many more critical journalists writing today about the Olympics than there was even 10 years ago. There are some academics who've been very critical as well, and, and their research has been valuable for both the, the journalists as well as activists in some cases to get some facts under their belt. So I think you know, that has all put the International Olympic Committee in a bit of a corner. For me, what the thing that's really going to change it, there's two things. One is if the cities just don't want to put forth bids anymore, and you're seeing right now in slow motion the bidding for the 2026 Winter Olympics, and cities, city after city keeps pulling out uh, their bids for that process, that will definitely undercut the Olympics. And they've responded with PR, oh, you know, everything's just fine and full steam ahead, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the truth is if there aren't cities bidding on the Olympics, they're, they're really not going to be able to uh, have them go on anymore. And so, like, that's one of the major – I would say that's the major, one of the major things. The other one is athletes, and you see more and more athletes coming to awareness about the exploitative nature of the Olympics. Just one example, there, there's a fencer from – Team GB, Team Great Britain, named Lawrence Halstead, who competed in London 2012 and also in Rio 2016 Olympics. And he's been very outspoken, focusing in particular about the way that athletes are exploited, but also about the false promises in regards to sustainability. The more athletes who become aware of these problems and are willing to speak out about them, the more that will put the International Olympic Committee in a corner. You know, Lawrence Halstead has started an organization with some of his colleagues called the True Athlete Project. Uh, that's trying to help athletes with meditation because they're dealing with such high levels of stress. 
um, but also trying to see the bigger picture about the history of the Olympic Games and kind of what they're walking into. So I think those are the kind of groups that deserve our attention and deserve our support. And those are also the kind of groups that are going to put the IOC on their back foot and what really might change this thing around. But, you know, if there's one thing that I, I feel like has really changed in the last decade or so, it's that a, uh, activists, whether they're athletes or non-athletes who challenge the Olympic Games, are getting a whole lot more social credibility and deservedly so because they're raising so many important issues that affect their city. And I think they need to be taken seriously in, at every turn. And uh, in that vein, thank you very much for your, for your activism. Uh, as we close out here, are there any la- last thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with? Well, I would just say, you know, for people who are in Los Angeles, I, I hope everybody's paying full, full attention because there's something going on right now that's pretty fascinating that covers a lot of the bases that you and I have been talking about. And I just feel like now's a great chance to get involved politically to to raise questions about the Olympics because when this juggernaut rolls into your town, it rolls over the toes of all sorts of activists of many stripes. And when I look at the list of uh, coalition members for the No Olympics LA campaign, I find it really impressive and also a reminder of how massive the Olympics are when they roll in. But, you know, this is a great chance for activists to work together on a really important issue in ways that can last a whole lot longer than just the Olympic moment. I saw that with my own two eyes in Vancouver, where there was a super smart anti-Olympics campaign that continues to work with each other in, in really interesting ways in coalition, even after the Olympics have been long gone. So, you know, if I was in L.A., that's what I'd be paying full attention to and getting involved with myself. Yeah, the, the struggle continues. Uh, for those wanting to learn more, again, you can check out uh, Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics, which is available from Verso Books. Uh, Professor Boykoff, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you. Put it there, boy, and we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do.